Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In 1798, the American nation was embroiled in partisan conflict. With total control of the government, President John Adams and his Federalist Congress prepared for war with France. As part of their planning, the Adams administration proposed a radical series of new laws, including a house tax, that stirred resentment throughout the country. One of these groups was Pennsylvania's vast German minority, and their animosity boiled over into a rebellion just a few miles from the capital city of Philadelphia. On this episode, we discuss Freeze's Hot Water Rebellion of 1798. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American Rebellions, the winners and losers that help shape the future of the American Republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my Facebook page, The Conversation's Always Growing. Many of you have reached out. We've had some good ongoing conversations on there. Facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website for news updates and events, BradyKreitzer.com. We have a full summer ahead of us and are still taking dates. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we're going to be putting a pin once and for all, maybe, on the American Revolution and its lingering after-effects. We're going to continue our discussion of the many challenges faced by the new young American Republic, and we're going to flesh out its larger role in the world through the auspices of an event that few Americans are familiar with, but that was of the utmost importance in the earliest days of our country's history. That will be known as the Freeze Rebellion, sometimes known as the House Tax Rebellion, and also amongst our German friends, the Hesse's Wasser Ufstand, Hot Water Rebellion. Um, it's an interesting period in American history, and again, it can seem localized and seem trivial in the broader stroke of history, but the Freeze Rebellion, if we have to call it something, I think is very illustrative for us, uh, because it can show us the very real and serious growing pains uh, of American society, and also, uh, as this podcast will show today, it allows us to hold a mirror up to ourselves uh, as modern people and sort of view our country through a lens of the past. I think a lot about history as a discipline. I think a lot about history as a field. I confront myself with questions every day that I think we have a hard time answering. And one of the biggest ones is, why does any of this matter? I mean, why is history important? Uh, we all as Americans agree that history is important. Uh, but we're seeing funding for history at a low level. I'm not going to say an all-time low, but it's low. Uh, and no political party wants that. Uh, no side owns history. Uh, but we have to agree that we need to, again, support it however we can, whether that be through private funding or public financing, whatever it may be. 
But when I think about history, and again, the question of why does this matter, if I may soapbox a little bit, I sort of come to this conclusion. People say history repeats itself. I don't think it does. Uh, people change. Times change. You do learn a thing or two about human behavior over time. We see the same traps falling into a lot. Uh, but for me, I think history best serves us in a practical way uh, when it serves as a mirror. Uh, I think for the average person today wondering why should history matter to me, maybe I'm not interested in history, maybe uh, I'm just only you know slightly intrigued, uh, you know, history is important because it's a mirror. If you use history as a mirror, what do you see in a mirror? Your own reflection. And it can teach you a thing or two about your society. Uh, and that's true throughout history. And it's certainly true in the world today. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, and I want you to know that some of the problems that we face in America, but around the world, because this is a big debate, are not new problems. Uh, fundamental problems, quite frankly, that come with living in a democracy. Do you want small government, limited government, uh, or big government? Then the question becomes, how big is too big? I mean, these are very real questions. And uh, the Freeze Rebellion, the Hot Water Rebellion, uh, is a good way to, I think, really understand where America's come from at that point. Now, if you are listening to this podcast from overseas, that is to say not in America, uh, you are living in a democratic world. That is a democratic world that was began in Britain, uh, perfected, if I may say, uh, in America, and exported everywhere else, hopefully, if we're doing it right. So that's why I think the lessons of an early democracy are really important, because in many ways, in the modern sense, not talking about the Greeks or the Romans and their democracies, um, you know, the American story is sort of a, a tale of warning for some new democracies. We see new democracies all over the world struggling for legitimacy. Um, people go to vote, they end up shooting each other or hurting each other. Um, they don't have faith in democracy yet. Democracy is a very delicate plant that needs to be nurtured generation after generation. Uh, and it's not like in America, you know, we had it all figured out at first either. The 1780s and 1790s were very much trial and error. And one wrong mistake, rebellion after rebellion, as this series has shown you, uh, could cost us everything. So this is one of the really important rebellions, but also one of the least understood and the final of three major rebellions that happens after the revolution. Remember, the war was over after the revolution. The revolution was the hard part, right? As we'll see, it only gets harder from there. So that's why I want to talk about the Freeze Rebellion, the Hot Water Rebellion. Uh, and to do that, you're going to need some context, which is the fun part of this show. So we're going to put everything in perspective for you, why you should care that a group of uh, German immigrants rise up in rebellion against the new government. Uh, that in itself sounds unusual, uh, but not when you understand the time and the place. So without further ado, let's get to it. America in 1797 and 1798 was in a unique place. Our first president was gone. George Washington uh, left office after two four-year terms in office, 1788 to 1796. Uh, and we had our first presidential election. Really, I say that because Washington's election early on in 1787 uh, and 1792 was sort of a foregone conclusion. So by this point, America's in a position where it knows what it likes and it knows what it doesn't. 
and everyone north and south generally had goodwill toward General Washington, but they didn't really have goodwill toward his political party. Now, that's a new word for us. In Washington's time, we didn't have political parties. He was very much against the idea of political parties, but you did have ideological camps. And maybe out of respect to Washington, maybe because elections where presidents will leave office are natural times of change, you're going to have a major political restructuring. And if you are an American who likes the idea of small, limited government of states' rights, George Washington, even though he was a Virginian and a slave owner, remember Washington owned about 1% of all the slaves in Virginia. Even if you were a Washington man, and I say man because women can't vote yet, you're not really sure you like his party. Washington's party very quickly will become known as the Federalist Party. And they stand for, among other things, a strong, centralized U.S. government. Uh, Think today in Washington, D.C. This idea that the federal government, the centralized government, should have significant powers. And they should be strong. And they should be able to do things like raise an army from all of the states, raise a navy from all of the states, tax all of the states. And not everyone's on board with that. And this movement gets a leader in the form of a man you all come to know named Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson is a states' rights man. He believes in limited small government. He believes that only Virginia should be able to tax Virginians, not, you know, New Yorkers taxing Virginians, that sort of thing. And the party, if you want to use that word, it's not there yet, is beginning to coalesce around him. Jefferson's party will become known as the Democratic Republicans. Uh, But that's too long to say, so we'll just say Republicans. What I'm saying is by 1797 and 1798, America is fully engrossed in the wonderful and dizzying world of partisan bickering that we all have come to uh, deal with in the country we live in. Parties are a good thing, by the way. As soon as you have one party, the experiment democracy is over. Uh, But it can be taxing and it can be trying, and it's one of the sort of costs of living in a democratic world. But the new president after Washington is John Adams, Washington's vice president. And John Adams' vice president is Thomas Jefferson. At that point, the founders believed it would be beneficial for the loser of a presidential election to be the vice president under the sitting president, maybe to strengthen national unity, uh, maybe to uh, ensure that that contradicting or opposite voices will be heard. But could you imagine, by the way, if Donald Trump was the president and Hillary Clinton was the vice president? That would be, uh, I mean, that, that's the stuff of comedy gold. That is a pilot uh, for the next great TV sitcom. Uh, but we got rid of that. But at this point, that's still in place. And political parties and partisanship are growing to the point where I get into democracy. It can be very frustrating. Uh, John Adams, as president, has the the benefit of having a Federalist Congress behind him. Not only is he a Federalist controlling what will become the White House, uh, he's the president, the executive branch, but Congress, the House of Representatives, and the upper house, the Senate, are also controlled by Federalists. It's a tenuous lead, and it's one that is going to disappear very quickly as the new Republican Party grows. But Jeff, but Adams has this to work with. Also, as an aside, I always make sure my students understand this. 
As we move forward in American history, because this is a chronological season, you're going to hear names like Democrat and Republican and understand that you should have no party loyalty to any of these names in the context that we're discussing them. A Democrat didn't exist in 1798, uh, and a Republican in 1798 was not a Republican today. It wasn't a Republican 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 100 years ago. The names will be familiar, but the party values and the party platforms, that's a better way to say it, are going to be way different. So I don't think very many Republicans today care much about free land in the Missouri Territory, right? I don't think so. So <laughs> what I'm saying is don't feel obliged to these people by names. It's okay if you're a Republican. It's okay if you're a Democrat. It's okay, you know, whatever you are. Um, but historically, keep in mind, separate yourself from it. Don't feel an allegiance to this. Don't feel like you have to be a, a, uh, have a loyalty to Thomas Jefferson's Republican Party if you're a part of Donald Trump's modern Republican Party. They're not the same. Uh, and again, it only shades sort of our understanding of the past, which gets us into some problems. But this is the world Adams lives in. He is a majority president with a majority Congress. And what that means is they can get any law they want to be passed. That's how it works. For a law to be passed, uh, if it's financial, it begins in the House of Representatives, uh, and then the Senate will have to pass it too, and then the President will have to pass it. Only then does it become law. Well, Adams has that, so life should be good, but it's really not, uh, because the problem is beneath him, uh, there is a groundswell of support for this new Republican Party, which he is not a part of, and he is sort of public enemy number one for them. And it's becoming very clear that that party is growing leaps and bounds after eight years of federalism under Washington uh, and now throughout the Adams presidency, another two years. So ten full years, people want to sample a different kind of democracy. And that's all important because this will take us to the events we're going to deal with here uh, in 1798 and 1799, the Hot Water Rebellion. As president... Adams, much to the chagrin of his voters, is nothing like George Washington. Washington was a soldier. Washington was Cincinnatus. He was the great uh, uh, keeper of power who willingly gave it up. Washington was six foot three. Washington was a striking figure. He was highborn, if you would, uh, from a, from a rich family. He was educated. He was an excellent writer. He cut a nice figure. Uh, he was respectable literally by almost everyone who could vote in the country. Adams was none of those things. He was short. He was pudgy. He was bald. Uh, he was like the penguin. You know, Commodore Schmidlab. That was him. Uh, he wasn't a likable guy. He was very intelligent. And if you want to uh, read his notes, you might find you agree with him on a lot of things. But he didn't have a way of presenting that. What I'm saying is, there wasn't a lot to like about Adams in his own day. It's never easy to be president. It's really easy to hate on the president. I mean, we've made, like, you know, our mark. That's what we do. We make fun of the president. And Adams was the first guy to follow Washington, and that's a tough act to follow. But Adams has a whole host of problems. And one of them is, again, the fact that he controls government, uh, but his policies aren't well liked. Uh, and the other is that America's still part of a larger world in 1797 and 1798, and we forget that too much. And it's important we remember it. You know, that's been a vital part of the American story. We have an ocean to our east and an ocean to our west. The old world and the new world are separate by leaps and bounds by 18th century standards. 
but we're still part of the European world. We still have a role to play on the planet, and we're not a world superpower yet by 1798, but we will be in about 150 years. But we're not yet. But we still fit into the larger picture. So what does that mean? Well, early on in Adam's presidency, there was sort of this dangling, lingering problem with Great Britain. You guys might have heard of a war we fought against Great Britain. We're about 10 years removed from that war, 15 years removed from that war. But they're one of our biggest trading partners. And that has to be remedied, that relationship, if America's going to be successful. So John Adams will sign what becomes known as the Jay Treaty. And the Jay Treaty is not well-liked, especially by small government or limited government conservatives in the Republican Party. They think it's too friendly to the British. They think um, it's too hostile to France, who was our ally in the Revolution. Uh, it's just another point of contention for John Adams' presidency, and this time on a global scale. Well, again, in that larger world... We do have loyalties. The Jay Treaty sort of goes against them. Uh, it reestablishes good terms with Britain, but it badly damages our terms with France. And France is really important in this story. France in the Revolution was our greatest benefactor. We absolutely, positively would not have won the way we did without French money. We had no boots. We had no money for enlistments. We had no bullets. We had no powder. We had no navy. They gave us all of that. So credit where credit is due. Season 3, we go into that in great detail. But the problem with France for John Adams is, if you know anything about the 1790s, was that they also had a revolution. And the absolute monarchy of King Louis was overthrown. The Bourbon dynasty is gone. What is in place in France now is sort of a confusing and conflicting series of uh, attempts at democratic rule and sometimes tyrannical rule by guillotine. And for John Adams, that's a problem. We owe France a lot of money, in Adams' mind we do. Um, but we don't owe that France a lot of money. In Adams' mind, we owed money to the Bourbon family, the absolute monarchy that existed in France for hundreds of years. We don't owe money. Uh, to the rebellion that followed, because it's a messy rebellion. It's a nasty rebellion. And the French government, whatever it looks like, is going to come calling. They're going to tell the Americans, we want our money. And Adams is going to say, no, we're not going to pay you that money. You're not the French government we made the agreement with. You're not the French government that actually gave us the money. You people overthrew that government. So in, in, in the Federalist mind, uh, the money owed to France isn't owed to them at all. You know, they didn't pay us. These people didn't pay us. Why should we give them somebody else's money in exchange? So Adams refuses to pay that. And that really sours our relationship with France. Uh, later on, something will occur called the XYZ Affair. We'll send a series of diplomats to France. Uh, and our diplomat will write a letter back to John Adams saying that the French government will not meet with our diplomats unless we pay them under the table. And instead of listing the French uh, diplomat's name who made this sort of salacious request, the American diplomat will write X, Y, and Z in place of their three names. Well, of course, that letter gets leaked to the press. Bum, bum, bum. Leaked to the press. Unimaginable, right? Unthinkable. Nothing new, folks. Nothing new. Uh, and... It becomes known as the XYZ Affair. So what all of this means is, 
uh, just 15 years after the American Revolution against Britain, that we won with the help of France. The John Adams presidency is preparing for the potential of another war with France. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's where we are, and that's the world of diplomacy. You're always walking a knife's edge. By the time we get to February of 1797, our relationship with France is so bad under Adams uh, that, again, war seems like it's on the horizon. Making it even worse, and this was the most immediate fear amongst the average American, by that point, the French government, through use of privateers and their navy, had captured over 300 sailors on board to serve in the French navy. We call that impressment. So all of that to Adams is bad news. And much to the dismay of the Republicans, again, who already hate Adams, um, it puts us on a real war footing. And it seems like a war with France is coming right around the corner. It's confusing. Most Americans don't know about our war with France in about 1798 and 1799 because it didn't happen. But America is very much operating, as far as the government goes, under the sort of umbrella that it would happen soon. We call this the Quasi-War. The Quasi-War. That's a good name for it. And you can do some your own research on it, as it's not really the, the topic of the story today, but it is part of the story as far as causes. But when America's on a war footing, uh, the president, John Adams, takes several steps to make sure that when the war begins, he is commander-in-chief and he has the full faith of the people. Now, we know he doesn't. We know he's very much disliked by the conservative wing, uh, the small government wing of America. And being president's like not easy, and there wasn't really a lot of rules as far as what a president could do and can't do as far as the Constitution goes yet. So Adams takes it upon himself to pass six pieces of legislation which will put America not only on a war footing overseas, but almost in a civil war footing at home. And these laws become known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. They include, and I'll read these by name just to make sure we have them all if you want to research them further, the Naturalization Act, the Alien Act, the Alien Enemies Act, and the Sedition Act. The Alien and Sedition Acts. And again, with Congress still being controlled by his party, even though they've lost the control of most Americans, they give themselves like almost tyrannical power with the Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, they give themselves far more power than anyone has ever tried to have before. And if you're a person who fears a strong centralized government, like the Republicans do. I mean, this seems like the big moment. This seems like the end you've been trying to avoid. Um, the Alien and Sedition Acts give Adams, as president, the ability to expel people during a time of war who might be considered an enemy of the state. Uh, the Sedition Acts uh, give Adams the power to lock up anyone who seems to be inciting rebellion against the government. Now, that's important because we've already seen Shea's Rebellion 10 years earlier and the Whiskey Rebellion just four years earlier. Those might be illegal. Let me say that. Um, but the next part is totally illegal because Adams also makes it illegal for anyone to criticize the government or the president in any form, most notably in newspapers. And Adams will actually arrest Republican newspaper editors for saying mean things about him. Um, that is totally illegal, okay? Uh, in America, that's what we do. We rip on the president, Democrat or Republican. 
People have made billions now with cable news off of doing nothing but ribbing on the president 24-7. Fox News did it to Obama. MSNBC was doing it to CNN. MSNBC is doing it to Donald Trump. It's what we do. And Adams did not take well to that. So Adams is doing this under the idea that we have to be unified in a time of war. But he's turning America against him in doing it. It's going to make him wildly unpopular. But one of the other things he does, which directly ties to today's episode, is he raises taxes on what he calls a house tax. Now, this tax will be levied on every single state. Again, if you're a small government states' rights person, you hate that. And it'll be levied on all property, all farmland, and all slaves. The slaves bit more for the South. And this will effectively send armies of tax collectors into the American countryside uh, to collect taxes from people and make sure they pay their share. Pennsylvania, this is where this story happens. Remember, Philadelphia is our capital, so this is going to be pretty important. Is owed $237,177.72. That's exact, but hey, that's why you're here. Uh, and they're going to have to pay that sum of money to the federal government in order to prepare for this war. This is where uh, the rebellion's seeds begin. Remember, we fought a revolution, supposedly over taxes. If you listen to season three, you'll learn that it's really only about taxes on the East Coast. It's about Indian attacks uh, in the West, among other things. Uh, but for many people, now that you have a federal government that's been around for 12 years, uh, for you know almost two decades, uh, this is an unacceptable tax. And for one group of people in particular, this will drive them to open rebellion. And they are the German population of the United States. We're going to take the podcast now in terms of context in a different direction because you have to understand the German population of the United States in the 18th century to understand why they do what they do. It's really important. Uh, I study the colonial frontier. I study the frontiers of empire. Uh, and Germans are a part of that story. And by the time you get to, say, 1790, they're a huge part of the American story, too. Just for some idea of what I'm talking about, about 27% of all immigrants coming into colonial America, so 1770, about 27% of, this is of European immigrants, not including the enslaved, are Germans. And about 80% of them come through Philadelphia as their first entry point. So Germans will never stray too far from the city of Philadelphia, uh, and the state now of Pennsylvania and parts of Maryland. Um, that's really important. The reason that 80% of them come through Philadelphia is because that's what other Germans did before them. And it's tradition. And that's a really important word when you want to understand colonial Germans. Tradition. Germans in colonial America, among any other immigrant group, Swedes, Dutch, Finns, Jews, Irish, Scots, whatever, Germans the most are most known for not giving up and not changing their ways when they come to America. Today you hear a lot of people say they don't like when immigrants come here and don't learn their language and don't live like Americans. They should do that. They're living here now. People said that in the, in the 18th century too about Germans. Benjamin Franklin, of all people, was the most outspoken about this. 
and he's sort of known today as like sort of like a liberal progressive kind of lefty hero. But he was very worried about the Germans coming into Pennsylvania. He worried that Germans uh, would take over the government. He worried that uh, German would be spoken in our schools instead of English. Uh, because, again, you know, uh, Franklin is an Englishman by ancestral lineage. Uh, he worried about the, that road signs would be spoken in German. And he said you can go to some of these German towns that they founded, like Lancaster, like York, like Frederick, Maryland, places like that where they've really taken over. Uh, and uh, you would only hear German spoke and never English. So Franklin was really worried. You know, he'd be really upset if he had to make a phone call and press one for English and two for German. So Franklin was really proactive in this regard. He he established uh, the Franklin College um, in German territory, so to speak, in parts of Pennsylvania that were heavily German. It wasn't well received. Germans live in tight-knit groups, uh, and they don't give up their traditions easily. Most people don't don't realize how serious this is, but if you travel in parts of Pennsylvania, New York, and Ohio today, you'll still see huge populations of Anabaptists, of Mennonites, Brethren, Amish, uh, who still only speak German and who still live in unique traditional ways. So even 300 years later now, Germans, to some degree, still haven't fully assimilated into our culture. And we just sort of like think that's something else. That's all this is. Uh, those groups, those Anabaptist groups, uh, are really just sort of like remnant colonial German communities in a way. Uh, they still, to all this time, have not assimilated. And if you speak uh, to to some of those people, and you can, they're very nice people, um, they still refer to outsiders as the English. That's something they do. You know, to them, for example, in the Amish, there's the Amish and the English. Even though I'm not English, uh, I have no ties to England, um, they would say I am the English. So that goes back way back. And also, whenever they first get to the Pennsylvania co uh, colony and then state, People ask them where they're from. They say Deutsch, Deutschland. They're Deutsch. They're German. Well, we have trouble with that. So we just say they're Dutch. So the term Pennsylvania Dutch comes in there. Uh, really, it's just like a corruption of the word Deutsch or Deutschland, Germany. But they come from lots of reasons. They come from Alsace. They come from uh, Baden. They come from the Palatinate. That's the biggest one. They come from parts of Switzerland. Um, and to us, they're all just Germans, but they, they carry these traditions with them. And this is something that they don't let go of, and it's really, really important to understand that. Um, for what it's worth, you know, traditional German food uh, is some of the best food around. Uh, things like bratwurst and sauerbraten and Wiener schnitzel. I mean, this is all great food for me because I'm deathly allergic to seafood. FYI, we're all friends here. So if you want to assassinate me, that might be the way to do it. Death by shrimp cocktail. But I know when I eat German food, you know, it's pork and cabbage, and I'm going to survive. Uh, and, you know, pork and cabbage probably makes up more of my diet than I should admit. But um, in any case, it's, it's important. Traditions last for the Germans. So when they live in the colonial world, uh, they do carve out a place for themselves. But interestingly enough, they're not necessarily against the notion of a free American republic. It's really sort of complicated. But again, that's why we're here, so we'll talk about why. Most Germans didn't participate in the American Revolution. Uh, they are by faith Anabaptists, which means they 
take on the Christian faith, whether it be the Reformed faith, the Lutheran faith, uh, any number of faiths, really. There were even some Catholics amongst them until later in life. The idea is when you're baptized as a baby, you can't make that choice. Uh, the Lord is forced upon you. When you take the baptism as an adult, well, then, then you are making that conscious decision. And part of that is this heavy emphasis toward pacifism. They don't like the idea of fighting and killing God's creation. So they're supportive of the revolution overall during the war, even though they're not fighting it. And after the war, they're supportive largely of the American Republic. Remember, they come from a place in Germany where even by the 1770s and 1780s, uh, the notion of feudalism, Game of Thrones-style feudalism, lords and ladies and, and vassals, still exists. They can never own land. Land is held at, to a premium. And when they come to America, they can own land. They love that. So for them, land owning is, land ownership is freedom. Uh, and when they hear that, you know, America gives you the freedom to live the way you want, they like the idea. So they're sort of left and right by today's standards mixed together. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. German immigrants and second generation Germans in, in early America. They want to live as a communal group centered around one church, one, you know, congregation with the minister being the leader. They like the idea of law and order in their own individual towns. So in that regard, they believe in a big government mentality. That is to say, they like giving the ownership and rights and power of decisions to a minister or a group of ministers. And they'll follow those orders. That's the way it's done. Where they are more conservative is that they don't want any outside government telling them how to run their congregational level government at home. So they don't want a big government somewhere else, like the U.S. government, coming in and saying, you have to live a certain way. They're okay with their ministers in a congregational level telling them you have to live a certain way. But they're not okay with someone trying to dictate that smaller unit that they live in. So that's the idea we face. Complicated, but important. Because in 1798, you're going to begin to see a lot of these Germans who weren't necessarily politically active before be, uh, I think, agitated into political action by that house tax raised by the Adams administration and by the sort of groundswell of support of small government conservatism brought on by Thomas Jefferson. Now, in 1798, there was a great suspicion amongst most German Pennsylvanians uh, of these tax collectors coming around. Because to them, their land was sacred. It was theirs. It was the manifestation of American freedom. They owned property. They could never do that at home. And the idea of these tax collectors collecting money on their lands troubled them. But the idea that these tax collectors were also measuring their land, counting the windows in their house... Um, led them to believe that this would be a tax that would come back around later as well. They would add to it. So you see resistance in the counties surrounding Philadelphia, our capital, amongst the Germans, as early as the summer of 1798. They're raising liberty poles, which are basically, you know, shaved off trees, raised in the air, usually a flag or a symbol on top, something for people to rally around. It was common forms of protest at the time. But things weren't violent amongst the Germans. They were clearly unhappy. There were thousands of them. And that's very scary for John Adams, because this is a group of people that haven't really been against you, but they haven't really been for you either. 
they're sort of staying out of the way. But if they would become agitated and politically active, never mind rebelling openly, that's a real problem for you. And through most of 1798, the Germans in Pennsylvania just get riled up. They get fired up about American politics for the first time because they think this is a violation of their constitutional rights, which they do believe in. Things will start to get more hairy in 1799. That year, January, right off the bat, new fiscal year for the American government, the federal government will issue a series of warrants for the arrest of uh, any German-American citizens who lived in and around the region and did not pay their taxes. Again, Pennsylvania has a tax burden to meet, and they want to be sure that it's done. You cannot do this without the Germans who live there, nor should they. America is sort of a quilt of a society made up of many different peoples. A U.S. Marshal named William Nichols will leave Philadelphia on February 25th, and he'll have a series of warrants for the people who have not paid their taxes the most, the most egregious tax dodgers. And he'll go into the counties around Pennsylvania, around Philadelphia, and he'll pass these out. By March 1st, this U.S. Marshal was able to arrest 12 German men, take them into custody, uh, and then serve out the remainder of his warrants. He'll take them on March 6th, a week later, uh, he takes them to the city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which of course is still there. Uh, nice little town. Uh, and there will be a local inn, a tavern called the Sun Inn. And he'll sort of use this as their temporary jail cell, and he'll rest there himself. Now these arrest warrants are important. And they're important because uh, when they're served, you have to appear in court. And the only court you can appear in is Philadelphia. Now, for many of these Germans, when they first came to this country, uh, people in Philadelphia, mostly English, mostly Quaker by faith, were very clear to them. We don't want you in our city. Move west. Live on the frontiers. Spread the American way. But stay out of our business. So there's a natural antipathy, an anger, and animosity toward the capital, Philadelphia. The old country mouse versus city mouse debate we always see. And the fact that they have to travel to Philadelphia and be tried by a jury that they don't consider to be their peers uh, is more than most of them can stomach. Now again, I must stress, Germans are pacifist by nature. They're insular by nature at this time. They don't get involved with other politics, especially American politics. But the fact that these men are jailed against their will by a government they don't necessarily condone puts them in a position uh, where they have to fight back. 400 men under the command of a man named John Freeze, it's spelled like fries, uh, but it's Freeze, uh, will march to Bethlehem, surround the Sun Inn, and demand the release of those 12 prisoners. It's a tense standoff. The debate lasts throughout the day, but ultimately... The U.S. Marshal, William Nichols, agrees to conditionally let the men go. This supposed uprising will prompt John Adams in March to release sort of a cease and desist letter to the German uprisers, the German rebels, uh, to disappear, you know, go back to your homes, uh, or troops will be sent out. Things weren't necessarily openly violent, yet no one had died, uh, but the women of the German villages had recently taken to dumping hot water out the windows on the tax collectors, which is pretty painful. So this becomes known as, again, the Hot Water Rebellion, the Hesseswasser Ustand, the, the Hot Water Rebellion for that reason. 
So it's not like people are dying left and right, but this is open resistance in major counties that basically surround the nation's capital. Now, with Adam's letter in mind, the rebellion will dissipate for the time being, but the agitation is still there. The riots, the protests, they're still happening. So in early April, Adams will send out U.S. military forces out of Philadelphia uh, to arrest the people he considers to be the most rebellious amongst them. John Freeze, Freeze Rebellion, is one of them. John Freeze is put on trial under the new Alien and Sedition Acts. It's sort of a double whammy for him because he's an immigrant and considered to be a rebel. Uh, he's found guilty and his punishment will be death. Fortunately for Freeze, May 17, 1789... There's a mistrial lifted, and the mistrial occurs because one of the jurors, it was found, was very much openly hostile to the Germans uh, verbally uh, before the trial happens. So amazingly, April 16, 1800, there's a second trial, this one presided over by Judge Richard Peters uh, of the Supreme Court. Richard Peters uh, upholds the new Alien and Sedition Acts, very unpopular in America at this point. Uh, the Federalist Party's on its way out. He's a Federalist judge. And he sentences, again, sentences Freeze to death. John Adams himself will pardon Freeze because he thinks rebellion should be dealt with swiftly, but with as little bloodshed as possible. Uh, and this is the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back for Adams, even amongst his allies. Alexander Hamilton, a staunch Federalist, says of Adams after this that the pardon of Freeze was, quote, the most explicable part of Mr. Adams's conduct. That relationship is over in a big way. And of course, we know John Adams will lose very terribly in the year 1800, and Thomas Jefferson, the Republican, will become the new president of the United States. He'll usher in a new era of states' rights, uh, limited government vision, and the Republican Party will rule the White House from 1800 all the way to 1828, uh, pretty impressively, uh, with no hitch involved at all. But even after that, the Freeze Rebellion and the legacy of the Freeze Rebellion lives on because it's considered part of the American Revolution in a way uh, because many of the people who participated lived through the Revolution. They were upholding what they believed to be the values of the Revolution. And remember that Supreme Court Justice, Samuel Chase, who presided over Freeze's trial and upheld the guilty verdict, he would actually end up being impeached. He'd be the first Supreme Court justice ever impeached by the House of Representatives, and that freeze decision would be ultimately used against him. So, why does this matter? Why is this important? Uh, again, history, in my opinion, should be a mirror. We should be able to hold it up to ourselves and see ourselves better. And you see a lot of debates in the Freeze Rebellion we're still having today. Big government versus small government. Uh, limited taxation versus proactive taxation in the face of war. Uh, you have one party dominating the, the executive branch and the legislative branch, and the judicial branch for that matter. And you have another one taking over. And of course the immigration debate's part of this too. At one point do immigrants assimilate into American culture. These are all important debates we have. And the Freeze Rebellion is sort of the manifestation of that. It reminds us where we came from. It reminds us that America is an ongoing experiment, but it's always been an experiment. And I think that's what's really important here. Uh, I really think there's a lot to this. This summer, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in colonial German country, uh, in and around Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, York County, Pennsylvania. 
If you guys know anything about me, I live in Pittsburgh. That's not close. That's about a three and a half hour drive. But the results of this are still very real because a lot of these towns are still very isolated. And, and again, you have entire portions of the county, thousands of Americans who still do not speak English, who still only speak German. I mean, if that is not 1798 jumping up and slapping you in the face, I don't know what it is. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope it gives you some pause. And if you're interested in this topic, please research it and write about it because we need people working on it. Hey, thank you very much. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Wartime.